Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. This episode of Rock Contours was recorded before the passing of Wilco Johnson. Anyway, hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. You just uh, You've got a household ghost, you were saying. Georgie calls it an imp. She thinks we've got an imp because things are going missing. And last night, because we're having to dry out the kitchen because we've got the new floor going in. And last night we plugged in a dehumidifier and someone unplugged it during the night. And it obviously wasn't either of us. Wow. This is your new so house, right? This is my new house. Yeah, but, might be my old house if it carries on like I've, this. I've got a feeling, though, that imp followed me around on tour because things went missing every time I got back on the bus and they were usually just left in the hotel room, right? No, yes, that's, there is that. I, I know, I've got, there'll be an explanation. There always is. We're rational people. Anyway, talking of rational people... Richard Hawley. Uh, that's a, Richard Hawley, what a terrible <laughs> link. Um, that's a, that's never gonna be meaningless. The, that's never going to be the title of his album, is it? <laughs> Unless, of course, there's a place in Sheffield called Rational People Bridge or something. I think it was, I think it was a standby title for a pulp album. <laughs> uh, which he may have played on because he played guitar there you pulp. go got it got it I've managed to reel that one back oh, who writes this stuff um, <laughs> Richard Hawley I'm so jealous of this guy you know for so many reasons you know you, you, I've been listening to him a lot in the last few days I'm most of all jealous of his hair I mean to have hair I, like don't, that don't 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 even start we can't talk about it in fact I might have to turn the camera off um <laughs> He kind of had a whole, it's one of those lovely people where he had a whole career as a session guy, sideman, and he kind of became a solo artist more through people telling him to than anything else. He did. And the kind of music yeah. he, he, he makes is quite extraordinary. You know, it harks back to sort of Jim Reeves and Lee Hazelwood. And, 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 and I know he actually played with Nancy Sinatra. That's right, yeah. So, which obviously Lee Hazelwood did. Um, Scott Walker, you know, these are the kind of people that, he's, that his music is resonant of. And and that voice, that beautiful baritone voice. Yeah, it is. It's very, very seductive. Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. 
Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's, uh, it's fabulous. So great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! All right. Your hair looks amazing already. Your hair does look amazing. We got it in profile there as well. I, We're so jealous of your hair, Richard. I've just got out of bed. So. <laughs> That, that doesn't make it better. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I managed to have a shower, but uh, I, I still keep rock and roll hours, you see. So 10.30 for me is like dawn, you know. Your no, wife was saying that um, you, you, you're not very good at turning the computer on, but I, I'm, I'm assuming that when you do your demos or you're in your studio, you do a bit of that though, don't you? you no. Or you do have someone else could do all that? Yeah, I've never been a, a knob twiddler, you know. I, well, apart from me, obviously, you know. Because your music is so beautifully <laughs> produced, all of it. Yeah. I, I use my ears, you see, and I just get somebody else to do all the, the stuff. Yeah. What's that Fender amp behind you? That looks nice. Uh, that's a, that's a, a, a Fender Tremolux, and I bought that when I was 16. I've got the same. Have you? Yeah, mine's a 63. It's beautiful. Yeah, I don't know what year that is, actually. Um, if, you send me, if you send me the serial number, I'll find out for you. Oh, great. Thank you. I'm, I'm actually that dull with stuff yeah, like I that. I don't know why know. I, you know what? I, I, oh, so you are, you are techie, but it's that stuff. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, more, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Ner the nerdy kind of guitars. Yeah. and. You know, you, well, I was going to say, you know, you, you can't be a, a session player as long as you and not know, you know, I can give you this or I can give you that. Or, no. Well, that's why I used to get work, you see, because it's, 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 you know when you've been playing for so long, and you know what guitar will go with what amp. Also, one thing, Richard, I've got slight envy here. I've just moved into a new house, so and the internet doesn't work. So I've had to bring my computer to my mother-in-law's house, so I haven't got any guitars or amps. But if, if you're good on horse statues... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Yeah, they, they look like um, 1970s toys that I used to play with, Johnny West. Does anybody remember them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had, I had the, it was for my third birthday. Me, me, Nanan bought me a Johnny West with the horse. Yeah. Well, why we're on Johnny's, actually, not that. I don't mean it like that. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> but Johnny Seven was the toy that I always wanted. Yeah. But that's probably a bit before your time, isn't it? I'm 55, so. All right, so I'm 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 63 now. So, but Johnny Seven was in the 60s, and it was a basically a gun that had every single thing you ever wanted. Yeah. It one man army, and my friend had it, and it was the envy of our street. And I never got one. And then I remember having a conversation with Jonathan Ross, who said I never got one when I was a kid. Now I own ten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he collects like uh, toys and that, doesn't it? Yeah, he does. He does. Yeah. Let's get back to your session guitar playing. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, I'm a because you were, you know, because this is something we have in common. Because um, you were bit, you were, you were a huge session guy in the nine, in the 90s, wasn't it? Was your sort of salad base? Yeah, like that. late 80s and 90s. But I kind of, yeah. it was a funny one because, I mean, energy wise, I couldn't do now what I did then because I was playing with the long pigs, I was playing with pulp, I was doing sessions, and I got uh, my own 
rockabilly band, which we all had long hair then, so we called ourselves the Hippie Billies. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I was doing that, plus, you know, me and my wife had started a family and um, 98, my daughter, uh, 93, my daughter was born and 98, I started working with Paul. And then kind of from about early 90s, late, late 80s, sort of, I started getting my foot in the door, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And then uh, right through till early 2000s. And then I, I did my own first solo record, which I kind of did that. I thought, my dad just said to me, he, he was dying actually at the time. It was a bit heavy, but he was right. And he said, son, if you get to 60 and look back and you haven't used that voice, you're going to just go, shit, I didn't do it. You know, so it was like a, Anyway, so I did all that stuff at the same time, and I don't think I could do it now. Were you in Sheffield for the whole time this was happening? How did you move to London? I mean, no, I've never lived in London. No. Yeah, that's what amazes me. Yeah, you, you, yeah that's you were literally. There was so much happening in Sheffield. I was talking to Tom from Gomez the other day. Oh yeah, nice geezer. Yeah. You. And he just said, he said, yeah, it's just everywhere you went. Richard was Richard was always in the room playing. He was always, you know. And well, there was there was two of us. There was me, and there was Shez Sheridan. And uh, it was like a revolving door. In in uh, a, there was a studio in Sheffield called Axis, yeah. And that that was a great studio, fantastic live room. Uh, and that was uh, run by well, it was owned originally by the Comtar Angels. And next door was the Human League's place. Uh, Kevin Bacon, the the uh, bass player from the Comtars, he kind of became. Yeah a producer and his mate, John Quornby, who was uh, a jazz kind of pianist. And he played in all the wine bars and pubs that I played in just to eat, you know. They produced a stupid amount of records during that period of time. I mean, I saw oh, me and Shez. Uh, Shez ended up playing in my band, so he's the other guitar player, you know. He's actually a shitload better player than I'll ever be. So <laughs> it's, uh, I thought, well, I want him on the inside rather than the outside, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but me, me and Shez would just see each other literally like I Shez what are you working on today and you know it'd be Ziggy Marley or All Saints or whatever it was and um, yeah it was just mostly us two you know, and were these recordings that. always in Sheffield or did you ever get the yeah. time down to London I, I, I used to I, I worked with Nelly Hooper a lot you know oh, yeah. and uh, that was in Sheffield no no that was later in London I was going to say yeah I, I, I just lived in a a terraced house that looked like Coronation Street, you know. And Nelly had sent his driver up in this massive Range Rover and the entire <laughs> back seat was just a fuck-off speaker. So Nelly. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, we just cob all my gear in the boot and drive down the M1 to Nelly's Muse Studios. And I played with him <laughs> on Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. Uh, Shitloads of stuff with Nelly. I can't remember it all. But um, that was kind of later... And I guess that was almost near the end of when I stopped doing it, you know. I think that was about 98, 99, 2000, something like that. And then when I released my first solo record, it all stopped. What style were you playing, though, Richard, that, that people were wanting from you? Did it have a 50s quality to it at that point? No, it was... It was big. I guess that I got the gigs because I was the guy who could turn up and... Oh, this sounds like I'm bigging myself up. I mean, there must have been hundreds That's why of here, players. Right? <laughs> yeah, but there must have been hundreds of players who were better than me. But I got a lot of work, and I think it was because of the speed 
that I just listen to something. I can't read music. And it's like, no, that that will that's the same. I'm sorry, that's the same thing. Yeah, I, I just I, it is. I, if you're in and out quick, that's you're the guy. Yeah, and and and, <laughs> and you're in and out quick, and it's a certain quality, you know. Yeah. But I'd I'd just get them to play me the track and just I don't know instinctively know what guitar, what amp, and it, it was simple as that. And uh, I mean, back then you didn't people wouldn't send you the track the night before. Just, That's right. Nothing. Turn up the to stuff the, wasn't allowed out of studios. Yeah. It wasn't allowed out. Yeah. Right? Was, and maybe you'd have a phone call with Kev or Nelly or John or whoever, and you, you, you'd get a rough idea of what sort of vibe. Because you, you didn't want to be chucking a you know a Marshall stack in the in the van if you had got some kind of clean funk thing yeah, to yeah. play, you know. So yeah. <laughs> maybe a phone call. And I used to use quite small amps, you know. In fact, I got a bag. I got a bag filled, you know, with those little uh, transistor sort of souvenir copy. Uh, you know that you just put them on your mantelpiece, little oh, amps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I used to have this, I used to call it the Marshall stick, not a stack. <laughs> and it, it, it was just this little thing like that. And I used that on so many... Uh, You're kidding. No. All the long big stuff, the first album, most of the uh, the overdubs that I did, they were through that. What were the sort of ones that stay in your memory as being ones that you felt were really successful for you or came out well? What, the sessions stuff? The sessions. All of it. You know, it was just, it was like a thesaurus, a library, a dictionary. Um, I learned as much as I brought. And the, the breadth of musicians that I worked with were insane. But that must mean for you to absorb all that and have all that stuff on tap, to put out, was this because you were listening to everything by choice anyway? Did you have a very broad taste in music before that? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. That, this session period, I mean... You work out the maths because I'm shit at all that. But it's, it's, it's um, by '93. Uh, well, I know how old I was. I was 26 because that was when my daughter was born, and um, I'd already been playing for 15 years, ever since I was a kid, playing with my dad and my uncle and and all that. You know, you know, Joe Cocker was my godfather. You know, but he wasn't really around much, but. It was only, it wasn't rock star stuff. Joe was only involved because him and my dad used to fit radiators together for gas board. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I love that. Yeah. But your dad was a massive influence on you, surely, because he was a, he was quite a big star in the area, wasn't he? Yeah, he's... he's um, Dave Hawley. Yeah, him and my uncle, Frank White, they were, again, like me and Chess, they kind of ran the house band at the Mojo Club, which was in Pittsmore, which was an area where I was born. Uh, that was run by Peter Stringfellow, you know, and he got to see Hendrix. He, he's played with Ike Turner and Tina Turner. It's just this little club. And Dad, he sort of ran the house band, uh, um, the Esquire, which is now the Leadmill. And uh, Dad got Well, you're to play. playing in a couple of... You're playing very soon there, aren't you? I've, I've just... I, I played uh, four nights in August and I'm doing three more nights at Christmas. You've got to do what you can to try and save it, you know. Amazing. Yeah. Which we can discuss later, you know. Yeah. I've set aside, lads, just so you know, all day until whistle goes and kick off an England match. So <laughs> <laughs> you've got until then. I can talk for England, boys, but... Well, I'm loving it. That's all we want. Go That's back to want. evoking your dad in that in, in in that club. Yeah, so it was a fantastic era, that. Um, and my dad was a steel worker, mainly, but he kind of played music as a... He was semi-pro, you know. But he was shit hot. 
you know, him and Frankie were amazing guitar players, amazing. And um, Frank always, right until his death, Frank played in, um, which was just before well, the very beginning of lockdown, actually. We lost Frankie. But he continued playing right until the end, you know, in bars. He had a residency at a, a pub called The Pheasant, which he played for 27 years every Friday. And Dad, he quit and he went to go in the steelworks in about 73 because playing in bars or clubs just couldn't sustain a, a family with three kids, you know. Anyway, so in the kind of early 60s, Dad played with Sonny Boy Williamson and uh, wow. John Lee Hooker. Got some great stories about Sonny Boy. Fucking hilarious. Go I've on, never mate. told him, actually. Come on, let's come on, come on. The, the, come on, the go, go, go. Fucking hilarious. Um, I might save him for the book, though. You never know. Oh, we'll see. Oh, we'll mate. see. One, you must have one spare. Yeah. You must have one spare. He's, uh, he's, he's, and then, yeah, Frankie played with little Walter. I've got pictures of that. And Frank Frank was the first person in England to have a double-neck guitar. He had a double-neck SG years before Jimmy. I spoke to Jimmy about this when uh, Jimmy came to see Dwayne Eddy when I was playing with him in, in London. And I, I polled him about that, actually, and he admitted that he saw... Frankie's guitar arrived in 62, it was. 62? Yeah. He's, wow. Dad and Frank, so um, you've got to keep me focused because I've had a shitload of acid, lads. In, in not, <laughs> not not this morning, but just Yeah, in, because in, the, the, S, oh, the SG... We, we have, we have. The, yeah, yeah. the oh, SG... Great. That's the horses, I can tell. Yeah, okay. The SG came out <laughs> yeah. in, I think, 61, 62, no didn't horses. it? So well, that was yeah. the new Les Paul. Yeah, but his... his um, Dad and Frank saw a drawing at the back of a Gibson catalogue in 1959, and that was in uh, Wilson and Peck's music shop in Sheffield. And it, was, it wasn't even in production, it was just a drawing. And uh, Dad ordered the, the YSG because he'd seen Sister Rosetta Tharp playing, you know, the big... Right, yeah, of course, pickups. that's right, with, with the three pickups. Well, she yeah, played yeah. in Manchester, you know, and, and Dad had been to that gig, and uh, he'd bought records and stuff of hers. And then Frankie... He ordered the double. Oh, no, sorry. It was Dad that ordered the double neck and Frankie ordered the single neck because Frankie was a lot smaller than my dad. And anyway, fast forward, it took like three years for this fucking thing to arrive. You know? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you needed need someone like a Cliff Richard to bring it over like, yeah. he, did for, like yeah. he did for Hank, right? <laughs> yeah, except a shitload bigger, you know. But, uh, uh, I played it recently, actually, because it, it's, it, it's still owned by a, a, a guy in Sheffield who bought it from Frank, but it's heading its way possibly to some Russian oligarch for a collection. How did really... Frank end up with it if your dad had it? Because my dad picked it up when it originally... They were all excited because they were dead young. Dad picked it up and he went, fuck, no, it's too heavy. It was, it's so heavy as a, as a guitar. It's just, I think he's made out of solid mahogany, you know. I think dad geeked with it. I've got some great pictures of dad playing it for a local newspaper article when my sister was born. He sat in the front room playing it. And he's got this mod air code. It looks like Weller. It's, it's really cool. <laughs> and uh, all this Fred Perry stuff and that before that was a thing. In the end, yeah. they swapped. Frankie took the double neck and that became his thing. And the story goes that Jimmy saw Frankie play with Dave Berry and the Cruisers. Yes. Oh, I'm not telling that story, actually, but because it's contentious. But oh, it's man, contentious. you're going no, 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 no. to keep doing I'll, it. I'll get a lawsuit. It's, 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 it's the trouble. Okay, okay. Anyway, it's, right. the story Jimmy goes, saw it. Yeah, Jimmy saw my Uncle Frank playing at the 100 Club with Dave Berry and the Cruisers. And 
you know, there you go. And obviously Jimmy did a shitload more with it. He's, you know, amazing stuff. You know. Is there is there a sort of spiritual connection with, you know, Sheffield being a steel town and the sort of Rust Belt American, the music that was coming from exactly the same sort of area? Yeah, join the dots correctly there, you know. It's, it's, um, it's always been a thing, you know, with my music as well, when you're writing about, you know, the hills and the rivers and all this kind of grandiose landscape and the steel and the, the railways and all that and the filth, working class people, you know, having a hard life is that those songs just seem to be as if they could have been written in Sheffield, you know, to me. But they could have been written in Newcastle or Liverpool as well, you know. Because all this culminates kind of in your musical, doesn't it? Yeah. About the uh, Park Hill Estate. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned, is it Canvey Island or is it... Um... Canvey Island, well, that's where the, the feel goods and everything. I was just going to say, yeah, because it's where Wilco's from. Do you that's know? Right. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, because Wilco was partly brought up in Sheffield. Did you know that? No. Yeah, his auntie lived here and he he, he was farmed up here. He's got a, a real soft spot for um, for Sheffield. He's a very good pal of mine, actually. I love him very much. Oh, wow. Oh, the amount of music what? that's come out of Sheffield. Nor- is, Norman's an old mate of mine. There you go. He's the amount of music player. that's come out of Sheffield is is extraordinary. I mean, I you know, it was. I remember when we kicked off, you know, and there was, uh, you know, we were going to uh, electronic the clubs. limit club. You played yeah. at the limit. There club. was a there was oh, a, yeah, there was the electronic scene yeah. that was happening. Ten times. You know, yeah. with, with with Human League, and then there's obviously Def Leppard. Joe's been on the show. You know, yeah. um, he Joe actually talked a lot about a record shop. I think that was very hip that everyone went to for their for their vinyl. I don't know whether that rings a bell for you. Violet Mays was it? Yes, I think it was. Violet Mays. Yeah. yeah, she was a good friend. Of, she started off in the late fifties. There's a book about her actually. She was an amazing pivotal figure actually in the development of music. She could get you any record you wanted. And um, she was good friends with all the dockers in Liverpool. Not all of them, obviously. Where the records land. Where the records land. implies some of it's sketchy, you know. Yeah. But but she, she, she got records brought. Yeah. And she, uh, Dad would ask, and John Firminger, his drummer, Fermo, they would ask, he's a still with us, John. He's a beautiful, I call him Uncle John, great guy. He plays with the crickets now, you know, but he, he became friends with wow. Sonny wow. Curtis from the crickets because... He's still alive. Yeah, Sonny Curtis's favourite place to play was always Sheffield and and um because the fans loved. You you were all about that thing, you know. I think Newcastle's the same, Liverpool's the same. There are other places that, you know, um when America got tired of all the old rockers and a lot of the blues guys, when they came over here, they were loved and in London as well, you know. We kept a lot of people's careers going, you know. They were still having yeah. Hit like Howling Wolf had a hit in the charts in '64 or '63 with Smokestack Lightning. That was recorded in like '57, and in America they couldn't get arrested, but over here they were big stars. Yeah. You know, yeah, so yeah, they yeah. all came over. Bo Diddley, and I guess that finishes that story with my dad and Frankie because all those artists, like Little Walter, they tour around. I did a radio show actually about the gig that Frankie played with Little Walter. And it was called The Gig I Wish I'd Been To. And I think Weller did it and he did Live at Leeds. And Guy Garvey did it and he did Talk Talk or something like that. And I just chose our Frankie playing with little Walter at the at the uh, the Esquire. Amazing. Is there, uh, there's obviously a lot of love in what you're what you're telling us. And is is part of what you do, the musical style of your choice and your career? Is is that is that a sense of carrying on your dad's legacy? 
sort of, yeah. I mean, well, you call it a career. I mean, I became a musician to avoid having a career. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, right. It's, yeah. Uh, it's not just Dad, it's Mum and all those musicians that were around there. It's, I learned so much from them. I had me re a rebellious period where I thought all that was shit, but in my heart I knew it wasn't. And when I came to write songs for myself, because all my solo stuff pretty much is, it's, it has to start off with, I, I have to love it. And if you believe in that, you really love it, then it's a fair chance that there might be some other folks out there that'll get it as well, you know. I respond to the modern world, you know, I'm not trying to live in the past, there's no point. Because I, I collect sound, really. I, I wouldn't even say I'm a musician as such, but I, I just love sound. Lots of different types of instruments, and I'm fascinated with how they fit together. But you can hear that on your music, you know, the, the textural quality of what you do. You know, a guitar can often... Often you hear one of your guitar parts, and you think, is that a guitar? What am I hearing? It's, mm. it's beautifully sort of, you know, there's reverb and delays coming off it. And, you know, I mean, I'm going to jump right forward and talking about textural sounds and qualities, you know, something like um, Open Up Your Door mm. on, on your True Love's Gutter album. String arrangement in that took me to you know scott walker's it's raining today which is absolutely textural weirdness going on in the background mm. i mean that's that's what you're talking about right yeah kind of, well actually it was little anthony and the imperials that influenced me on that track on the, the oh was it yeah the opening of that uh but i mean scott was a, a good pal i didn't oh well yeah 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 he was he's i met him um on pulp's last studio album we love life and scott was producing it and that was a good story, that I shall tell you that. I was playing with, with Pulp Live and I had been, we all grew up together, you know. We all went to school together. Well, me and Steve, the bass player, did from infants. I met Jarvis and Nick and Candida and that when I was 16 in the Limit Club, you know, that's where we all met. And uh, the pub up the road, the Hallamshire, where we were all the musicians and used to hang out. And I'd been playing live with them for, for a long time, but I was still basically there as a session player. And on that last album, Jarvis asked me, because we were writing together by that point, and he, he says, oh, you've got to come in and play on, I think it was three, maybe four tracks on that album. He said, oh, can you do it quickly? <laughs> so I said, does that mean you've been fucking around so much you've run out of time, so now I have to do all my shit really quickly? <laughs> basically, that was the truth, you know. So I got a day to do all my stuff, and I played lap steel, on Sunrise, but Scott Walker was producing. I, I was shitting myself, to be honest, because Scott was, a, you know, I, is, will always be a massive hero, you know. I was supposed to get there by 10, 10.30, set up all my shit and be ready to go at 11 o'clock. So I did that, but next door to, I think it was Metropolis or somewhere like that in London, I forget exactly where, there was a record shop and uh, it was closing down. Last day sale. Everything must go. And that was the last day, you know. I was looking in the window and there was all these original Gene Vincent, Fats Domino, Eddie Cochran, all this mad shit in the windows in mint condition, these EPs. And they were like four quid each because this guy was closing. Right. So I thought, well, I'll just nip round there and buy as much as I can. And then uh, I'll be, be, be okay for the studio. So anyway, I did a lightning thing. I bought all this stuff and popped round to the studio, by which time I was half an hour. Well, actually, I think it was literally 22 minutes late. <laughs> and in 
in rock and roll world, <laughs> not too bad, you know. If it was the late 80s and early 90s, you'd get in deep shit, you know. But I thought, oh, I'll get away with this. Now, Scott was at the mixing desk with his baseball cap pulled down, and the first thing he said to me was, you're late. I was like, fuck. And I, I'd got this massive pile of vinyl, and I just put it on the uh, the island, you know, where all the onboard gear is and that. And I said, I'm, I'm really sorry, but there is this record shop next door. And then Jarvis started looking through it, and he went, oh, this is really good. And Scott goes, okay, let's have a quick look through. So Scott, he was looking through all these vinyl, and he says, hey, I played on that. I played on that. Because Scott was a session bass player, you see, for years in the... Oh, I didn't know that. You know, the late, very late 50s and early 60s. And he pulled out this Eddie Cochran EP, and he says, hey, I was there at this session in Gold Star Record at Studios. And it was one of Eddie's last sessions. And he says, hey, Richard, hey, do you want to shake Eddie Cochran's hand? And I went, uh, he goes, I met Eddie in uh, 59. He goes, and he shook my hand. So I know you're a fan. Shake my hand and you're shaking Eddie Cochran's through wow. me. Oh. I was like, just shivers, you know? Wow, the baton getting yeah. past. And no, it was maybe struck his Scott Walker. I was happy to shake his hand, let alone fucking Eddie's. You did, know you, I mean? did you ever did you ever play did you end up playing on any of his music? No, we talked about it so much. And uh Beverly, Scott's partner, she's uh, she's got a guitar that he's left for me that I've got to pick up. Uh, at some point because of lockdown and stuff I've not been able to see her and uh, that is that's amazing but, but when the musical goes to the national is I said I was going to pop round and pick this, this so up. it's going so to the, I, it's I going to the national theatre yeah it's, it's at the Crucible starts on December the 10th a bit of a plug there I'm just so pleased that he's come back because lockdown fucked it completely you know well fucked everything Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So tell us about it, Richard, about yeah, the writing process. Yeah, because I've been trying to look up... Oh, sorry, Gary. No, no. I've been trying to look up about it, and, and I've read reviews and everything, but I can't quite get... Is it, is it just based on songs of yours, or you wrote a score for the musical? Is it songs from Standing at the Sky's Edge? It's just songs from my past, you know, 22 years of being a solo artist, basically. So how did it come about? Who's directing it, and who wrote the book, as it were? Um, I was approached about 10 years ago. I was doing a gig in Portugal, and it was the last gig of uh, a tour I did with Nancy Sinatra. And uh, me and 
the lads in the, the band. Uh, I call them, it's Richard Orley and the Necessary Evils, I call them. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about that a bit, actually. I'm sorry to go off, only because cause your band have been with you for a long time and you've got a rhythm section, right? Colin Elliott, yeah, awesome. your bass player, who I can find very little about, and, and Dean, Barris for the drummers. But that's the real thing of, you were talking about your music being sounds you want to hear. Because these guys really, really sound like they know exactly what you're trying to say. I can't work with I've got to say, else. I mean, I... I mean, I love Colin's bass playing. The way he yeah. builds a part over a song is really, really beautiful. I'm telling you, you should come and see us live purely to hear Colin. Yeah. Because he's, I mean, they're all amazing. Well, I'll tell you, one bass player to another, he's, yeah. he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. But does he co-produce right. with you, Richard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he started off, I, I, I mean, I asked him really early on, oh, I need some strings on this. And he goes, oh, I've never done that. But me and him are like complete polar opposites. He studied at the conservatoire to whatever, studying cello and, you know, I learned in pubs and clubs and stuff and mm. what have you. And, uh, yeah, he's brilliant, Cole. He's really good. And I would sit over him and go, no, not that, not that, no, no, not that. And these days, I mean, he does string arrangements for Kylie and that now. And, he, oh, you know, he's just done stuff with uh, our Rebecca Taylor who's, you know, self-esteem and that. Yeah. and um, She's from Sheffield as well, is she? Rotherham, yeah, which is near enough. Right, right. You know, they've just got one more finger than the rest of us, you know, over there. You know, <laughs> Coming out uh, their forehead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if they're looking, yeah. <laughs> but go go uh, back to the musical, the, uh, the, yeah, how sorry, yeah. developed. Oh, yeah. This guy, Rupert Lord, right, he's going to come and see you in the dressing room after the gig. So I'd been, it was the last gig we'd been playing with Nancy. And I'd been duetting with her the whole tour because Lee Hazelwood was supposed to do it, but Lee unfortunately got sick and he couldn't do it. And obviously Lee Hazelwood will just, as we're going past his name, just to say he must have been a massive influence on, on you, his, his sound, because it definitely you're vocally. Yeah, of course, yeah, it. you know. But it was more somebody he produced though, which was Dwayne Eddy and Sanford Clark. That whole, f we're jumping so everywhere. I knew we were yeah, going to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, Always happens, don't worry. We love it. it. It's, the Phoenix sound was the thing that influenced me the most, uh, apart from my family. Was Sam, I call them the four horsemen of the rock and roll apocalypse. It's Lee Hazelwood, Sanford Clark, Al Casey, and Dwayne Eddy. And those four out of that desert town came up with a completely unique sound during that period of time. And the first big hit that Lee wrote and produced was called The Fool by Sanford Clark. I mean, I love Sanford Clark so much, I named my son after him. Wow. Well, Jerry oh, Jerry Lewis, Lewis Sanford Hawley, you know. Wow. Didn't it get called Cowboy Psychedelia or something like that? The yeah, lazy bullshit. You know? Right, right, right. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to. I'm trying to nail it down. That kind of quality of what it is, really. It, yeah. it has a country feel to it. Yeah, it's based in all that stuff, you know. But he took it somewhere else. You know, you can hear all that stuff in Nick Cave's music, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, there's that. It's just got that desert, hollow loneliness to it. You know. Anyway, so I was working with, with Nancy, it was the last night and the drives that we were doing was savage. So it was the last night we got a day off in Porto. So me and the boys were basically planning on getting proper pissed, you know, to not kind of cover this up in any kind of... <laughs> that, you know, that was your ambition. Yeah, well, it was a, a mission, you know. 
And, uh, it's always go, oh, you always got to aim for something. Oh, know? yeah. You've got to oh, aim. Or oh, you're lost. Yeah. Aim high, boys. Aim high, yeah, yeah. you know. So, anyway, this guy, Rupert Lord, I was like, who the fuck is this guy? So he turns up, and we're all desperately getting out of the suits and all like that to get ready to go to this bar that we'd piped off earlier in the day, which was really cool. And it played loads of really good music. Anyway, got chatting to him, and he said, look, I want to do a musical using your songs. And all the lads in the band just fell about laughing. You know, I thought, right, this isn't going well. <laughs> anyway, we got chatting and that, and I said, well, let's meet when we uh, get back to England. And I was intrigued. And uh, it, it took a, a long process to get to where we are now and a, a couple of writers and stuff. But um, we met Chris Bush, who's actually from Sheffield, lives in London, extremely mega talented writer. And um, she actually wrote the book, I think in literally less than two weeks, the whole script. It was so quick because it had to be, you know. And it's three um, generations, right? It's three generations on this estate. It's, it's a block of flats that it's it's like a they call it the Marmite moment, you know, when you whatever ventricle you enter Sheffield or leave from, whether it be the train station or you know the motorway, whatever, you see this brutalist architecture plonked on on a hill, and it, it's built over the old Duke Street. Uh, slums where my grandparents were brought up so that intrigued me straight away because i've heard you talk about this about what that used to be and how you did you say because sheffield on that whatever that area in the 20s was was called little chicago right yeah that's right rampant gangs yeah it was called yeah it was called little chicago that's where my grandparents were brought up and it was two gangs the mooney gang and the garvin gang and uh they fought literally with cellar grates and, and uh, bayonets in the street, like gladiators, you know, but uh, not very funny, you know. And um, That's a Peaky Blinders spin-off to come, isn't it? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, again, I've got a connection with that because of Anthony and Killian, you see, and I sang that, the finale song, but that's another oh, story. Course, right? yeah, yeah. That's another, <laughs> another story. But, yeah, the origins of all that, the real story is actually from Sheffield. The Sheffield. There's a book written by a dear friend of mine who's no longer with us. Uh, if you want to check out the history of post-war Britain and how shitly those soldiers from the First World War were treated, it's called uh, The Sheffield Gang Wars, written by J.P. Bean. Uh, it's an amazing book. So, But anyway, so... And then, yeah, this is very dull. Um uh, and then, yeah, fast forward, we're at the Crucible. It, it's, it's, it's a kind of, uh, it's the history of post-war, Second World War Britain through the, the narrow aperture of a block of flats. It's Amazing. simply put. And when's it coming to the National? Uh, in January, yeah. Who's directing? Rob Hasty, who's the, he's the, the main man at the Crucible. He's brilliant. That's amazing. Um, Congratulations. Wow. Yeah. Well, we're not there yet, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go to it when it comes, that's for sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, absolutely. You know, well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what the rock hunters <laughs> tries to breed. Yeah. Um, but listen... Al- alcoholics. You know, yeah. you know you're, when you first started off in those two bands, uh, you know, Treebound Story and, and, and The Long Pigs, mm. um, 
you weren't the vocalist, right? Oh, no, God, no. So you mentioned your dad saying you've got to go and do this. Mm. Did you, did you have that music? Because that very first EP you released, or, lo, or sh, you know, short album, if you like, mm. um, did was that seems to have everything that contains what we know as Richard Hawley's work, there, right there and then. Mm-hmm. And it comes out of the blue almost for, for, for anyone who's ever listened to any of your previous bands. Mm. Did, is it, was it sort of, how long was that before you, you, where did you discover that? And who encouraged you to become that? Uh, I started, well, probably like yourself, you know, you become aware that you can create something that isn't someone else's. And it's a really strange thing when you first realise, I don't know how it was for you, but I remember I was about eight or nine and I'd always fuck around with my guitar as much as I possibly could when I was a kid. There was no iPods, no phones, nothing to distract you from your purpose, nothing. Apart from, well, setting fire to cars and robbing and that, you know, <laughs> which the, the guitar. At, at eight? Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> no, maybe nine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is, is, um, no, the guitar just kept me focused, you know, and kept me out of trouble. It's, it's been the shovel that's dug me out of a lot of holes. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. It's the, it's the greatest weapon ever given to the working yeah, classes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's my it's been my plane ticket, my boat ticket, uh, mm-hmm. you know, ticket on trains, everything. And um, but that voice, that discovering that you should be the front man, that was much later. So I just I just I just remember playing my guitar late at well late at night for an eight or a nine year old, and my dad coming home early, early from the pub, so it was before closing time because he always used to play. At like most nights, he'd get home from the steelworks and he was still playing. He just didn't, it wasn't his entire life, but he kept playing right up till mid-80s. Anyway, so um, I just remember Dad coming home and he could see, you know, that sliver of light at the bottom of the bedroom door huh. that I was still up. So he just came in and says, what, what are you doing up? It's a school day tomorrow. I just went, I've got this this song and I don't know whose it is and uh, he says well play me and uh, I played it and he says it's yours I go to bed and he just took me up in bed gave me a kiss and turned the light off and I was just laid there just going what the fuck does he mean it's yours you know and it was at that point I kind of it suddenly dawned on me that you could make your own music you know, and it took a long time for that to to be anything like a song. And then I met Paul Infante, who was the singer in Tree Bound Story, the first day we went to Comprehensive at Firth Park School. And pretty much soon after I met Rob Gregory, Rob went on to be the drummer with Baby Bird and various other things. And uh, cause Paul Curry, he, his dad worked with my dad at the Steelworks. And uh, me and him were really good pals. And I found out Cuz played bass, blah, blah, blah. And then we recorded some stuff in the music room at school on a BASF, one of those orange and black cassettes, and just stuck the... the we borrowed, I think, my nanan's, like, uh, tape recorder. She used to listen to all racing on. And, uh, 
She recorded horse racing off the telly and yeah. then sat and listened to oh. playbacks of it. Oh, yeah, we used to do that with Top of the Pops, you know, listen to record it off yeah. the telly and that. Yeah, know? we used to do that on our cassettes. Yeah. yeah, and I think we just stuck that at the back of the room, put it in an envelope and sent it to John Peel, BBC London. That was the address. Didn't even, and like just, right to Father Christmas. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and and, um, and just uh, put a little handwritten note, this is our demo, we're at Firth Park School, uh, contact number Richard, and thought, well, we're never going to hear for call. Anyway, about two weeks later, he called our house and my mum answered the phone. And I remember sat at the top of the stairs knowing who it was because she says, oh, yeah, John, John, John Peel. Oh, him off at radio, yeah. Oh, uh, we worked. <laughs> and then because mum was a backing singer in one of dad's bands, The Whirlwinds, and uh, they'd supported the Beatles on this BBC Fuck, audition. What a fucking thing. house. Oh, my God. I don't and, uh, know. <laughs> when, when, when the... The Beatles won that first uh, BBC, uh, what they call it, talent competition. The the band that comes second was the Whirlwinds, which was my mum, my auntie oh. Jean, and, and, and my dad were in. So anyway, because oh, but Peel was there apparently. So they got chatting. It says, "Oh yeah, we met years ago in the sixties." Blah blah blah. And I'm sat at the top of the stairs at the time cringing with my head in my hands, just going, Mom, get off the fucking phone, you embarrassing old woman. But now, being older, I know the importance of that, you know what I mean? Yeah. But at the time, it was like, oh, my God, this is no fuck. And eventually, I got on the phone to John, and uh, he just says, oh, is that Richard? Says your name's Richard on the cassette. I said, yeah, he goes, uh, uh, if you could be at uh, Made of L Studios two weeks uh, Tuesday, um, we'd love you to do a session. And that was it. We went down in my cousin, uh, it was his camper van. We went down to Made of L in, uh, with all the amps and drum kits and that. I think we were about 17 years old, 16, 17. Yeah, yeah. Did the session and that was that. Sorry, I went That's off a, a beautiful bit of story. That's a that, lovely that's story. That's a fantastic story, man. And, and how John Peel has blessed so many people along the way. Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess if it wasn't for that, you know, maybe you wouldn't have got to where, what you're doing now because that just gave you the confidence and the leg up. The thing is, all, all these things that happen because they're all isolated incidents in your life. But, you know, you just, you know, it, it taught me very early on that all things are possible. Yeah, but yeah, I just yeah. want to so, get to that moment, Richard, still, when you just, you know that you have to be the singer and you discover this incredible voice which you've got. Because you have. I mean, let's face it, you've got one of the greatest voices in this country. Wow. I mean, that baritone yeah. voice of yours and the expression that you that it comes with and the storytelling you're able to create with that voice is is amazing. And it doesn't sound like anyone else that we know. And and when when was that, that everyone would have turned to you and gone, you should be the front man? Or were you just secretly making demos? No, um, it's funny you know about that with the voice, actually, because I, I play with Jules Holland a lot, you know, with his orchestra, yeah. and it's usually at Christmas and it's usually in Sheffield. And well, I've been doing it for 30-plus years with Jules and the the guys and the gals in his band. It's always good fun, because uh, that just brings me straight back to the roots, to me. Because there's fuck-all rehearsal, and you go, what key is it in? Should we do this song? 
a little bit of rehearsal in the corridor before and you're on. I love lyrics. That. Yeah, sort of. I literally write them on a bit of paper and tape it to the top of your guitar. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? The, the opening line, yeah. maybe. <laughs> and they were, they were the girls in the backing singers. I remember we were having a drink after one uh, show a couple of years ago. And they said, how, you know, your phrasing and how you do this and how do you, how, how do you sing like, how do you have a voice like that? And I, I, I did make them laugh because I was a bit pissed and I couldn't really think of anything intellectual or clever to say. So I just went, bags and ale. Bags <laughs> and ale. <laughs> just, it's Siggy's and ale. Yeah. But it was, it was Steve Mackey, wasn't it? And, and uh, who, who, I think encouraged you to to make those demos and to start pushing yourself as a solo artist. Yeah, Steve was a big factor in in it, giving me the courage, you know, and Dad, and uh, and Jarvis, you know, they were really encouraging about. Because the truth is, I've already said, you know, I started writing songs when I was really young, and you know, there was a parallel thing. I wrote songs and I played guitar in bands, you know. I, I also co- I co-wrote songs with Tree Bound Story and Lovebirds and, and some bits with the Long Pigs. I mean, Long Pigs was uh, Crispin's How did band. Long Pigs come about? Because it Crispin's not from Sheffield, is he? Was it uni? It was at uni. Uni, yeah, 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 him and yeah. Simon, yeah. Because Crispin and, uh, runs PRS now, doesn't he? That's right, like that. yeah. I'd, I've not seen him for some years. Yeah, and I, I saw him at uh, Ivan Novello Awards a few years ago. Oh, right, yeah. Runs it, yeah. Yeah, oh, he runs the Ivan Novello Awards, one of those things. Yeah, it's, um, I've never been given one of them. Um, Mate, I'm, oh my God. I'm, I'm not if someone deserves enough. a body of work award, yeah, you, you, you do. Just, yeah. It's, um, anyway, you, you don't make music for awards. No, no. Bollocks, all that, you know. Don't you? But, <laughs> you oh, yeah, you've been getting it wrong, <laughs> Oh, yeah. mate. Yeah. It looks he's nice on bullsh- that he's, he's bullshitting. That really is his house. In his mother in law. He won all awards. He yeah. won all those yeah, yeah, Polo awards. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Equine <laughs> awards. He's got two horses, little ones. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, Mackie and uh, and Cocker, they were encouraging. And, and me and Jarv on tour, we'd often get hotel rooms that had have you know, adjoining doors. So you just open up the door so it's one big room and we'd sit and hang out and in 98 on the hardcore tour. It wasn't all the time, but occasionally we'd be looking. We'd often just hang out and play guitars and a lot of songs come from that. Um, uh, the Born to Cry song that Pulp did and then Tony Christie covered on the album I produced for him, the Made in Sheffield record. There was lots yeah, of yeah. that stuff. And um, yeah, it was just... He, The co-writing thing has never been something that has been... I've done a lot of it, but it's it's always a weird process for me, and there's very few... Is it a, say, is it a different head to... Yeah, it's Wurzel Gummidge, isn't it? I don't know. The I, can't, I can't do co-writing as well. I mean, I find it yeah, hard. it's weird, you know, but it's the certain people that I can sit in a room with and it isn't weird, and Jarvis is one of them. It's just me and him in a room and it's completely natural. There's and was Jarvis feeling. doing the top lines or was he just doing lyrics? Whatever. You know, we just fuck about right. with, with guitars and... Okay, um, Lisa Marie Presley? Yeah, it's a... Uh, How's that? Well, that was me and her stuck in a room. And I thought, God, can I do this, you know? And um, it uh, again, Lisa was somebody that 
um, if I, if I'm working with somebody, whether it be sessions or or uh, I mean, I haven't done that for years now. The session that's way in my rearview mirror. Uh, although maybe I should take it up again just to get me chops up, you know. Um, but with Lisa, that was immediate in a in a room, pretty much immediate because. I never take any baggage with me. When you're working with someone, who they are, you've got to be aware of roughly what compass point on the dartboard they might head for, mm-hmm. I guess. But is none of the baggage of the past must be brought up. It's just you and that person in a room creating something new. Because <clears throat> when you, you know, it doesn't matter whatever your last record is, whether it was number one in the charts or 100, it's in the past. And everything new that you do, it has to be a clean slate, you know, and and it's irrelevant what you've done in the past because everything that you're doing is obviously new. And I'm never taking, you know, obviously I was aware it's it's Elvis's daughter, but is is that that kind of had no real bearing on what it, obviously for her the legacy did. Yeah, you weren't but, sitting there trying to come up with Elvis licks. No, right? no. I remember there was, um, uh, I mean, you just get some people in those situations that are so unbelievably unaware. And um, I remember the first session we did, it was in Universal Studios, and they got this young engineer in. And he just turned up with an Elvis is dead t-shirt. What? What? Oh, I was like, oh, are you fucking for real? Oh, God. And oh, my God. L- Lisa didn't see this, thank fuck, because I got there early. And I just went, you have to split, mate. You've got to leave. And he's like, what? I went, you can't wear that t-shirt today. Of all days, wear it tomorrow or yesterday. But why are you wearing the fucker today? How can you be so unaware? You know, and he's Did he like, not know? Did he not know? Was he trying to make a point? It's just something? been a con, you know, oh, to be to actually ass. boil it down. We could talk forever. Wow. But he was being a con, you know. Well, that's so weird. No, right. So that's anyway, play well today. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, so he was out the door, moving on. But um, no, it was good. Sat with Lisa. It was really productive. And um, we became good pals. And uh, the end, you know. I mean, playing Dwayne Eddy as well must, must have been yeah amazing for you. Yeah, that was off the map. That, that. It was, Tell uh, us a, a bit about how you get, got to meet Dwayne. My manager, Graham, I don't exactly know how the fuck that happened because all, all I know is my manager, he said, I've got to meet you for a pint. Now, when he says that, I know there's something fucking wrong. Fancy or a drink? The, it's from, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah exactly. Fancy a drink, means you're fucked, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, let's go for a little drink. What's that from? It's uh, that'll be the day. Isn't it? Yeah, that'll be the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Adam yeah. Faith. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, I love those films. He's great. Yeah, yeah. That's um, so good. David Essex, rock on. What a tune. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Incredible. What a tune. Anyway, so Chris Bedding. Chris Bedding. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, from Chef. Yeah. Um, oh. It's from Sheffield, Chris. Yeah. Of course, we, right. had, we, had, he, we had Chris he's, on. We've had him on. He's an old mate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris loads. Yeah. I've already met him once, which is incredible. I'd, I'd love to, to meet him again. There's a big um, connection between you two. I can see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, on, on so many levels. But there's this pub in Sheffield that I go to that I basically live in. And um, uh, he says, oh, I need to talk to you about something. Uh, I went, all right, well, I'm free now. And he went, no, no, I need to talk to you over a pint. I thought, oh, fucking hell, what's this? And when... 
he, he says, look, I've started managing someone else. And when a manager says that to you, it's almost, it's kind of like, yeah, almost like your missus saying, look, you know. Yeah, I think we should see other people. Think, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's all going to go a fucking on up And uh, um, he just said, I said, who is it? And he went, Dwayne Eddy. And I nearly dropped my pint. I said nearly, you know. I didn't spill a drop. Um, and uh, I said, you fucking what? Dwayne Eddy, where the, what planet rocket ship did that come from? And I remember him explaining at the time that because I'd, I'd worked with, this is, it's, it's just my life. I'm just telling you how it is. I know it sounds a bit weird, but it just is. Dwayne had heard from Lee Haverwood and Nancy that I was kind of good. And when I found out that Dwayne was driving around Nashville in his car, listening to my stuff, oh my God. blew my wow. fucking head off. Oh my it, it was enough that Nancy liked me because I, I co-produced some stuff with Jarvis for her, her last record and uh, played harmonica and guitar actually with Kevin John via another thing on a couple of other tracks as a session player as well. And um, anyway, so Dwayne must have got in touch with Graham. And the next thing, I'm in like a converted steelworks, this Yellow Arch Studios, which is where I always work in Sheffield, which is a hundred yards away from where my dad worked in the steelworks, sat playing with Dwayne Eddy, co-writing and producing an album. Now, Dwayne had got jet lag at the time. He was 70, I think he was 72. Uh, he'd not played, he'd not made an album for 25 years. The last wow. thing that he'd done was with um, Jeff Lynn, McCartney and George Harrison, 25 years previously. And I, I never, I've never found out why he'd not made a record. But... I'm taking it, you shook Dwayne's hand, right? Because that's a lot of hands oh, to he... shake at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, I was sat with Dwayne co-writing an album with all the lads in the band. I said to him, and we got 13 days to write and record this record. Making that record was having the ability to make instinctive decisions and obviously working right. with Dwayne. And uh, he, he'd kind of got an old fashioned sort of thing where he would defer to the producer. If there was like a, a conflict or not a conflict, that implies uh, a negative. If a dilemma. Was, if there was three or four opinions, you know, with our band, it's always been, okay, I'll listen to everyone. I'm a bit like Brian Clough, you know, it's like, okay, we got in the office and we, I listened to what he got to say and he listened to what I got to say and then we both agreed that I was right, you know. Is <laughs> yeah. it... Is, you know, if there's like a a moment where there's, there's, you know, I have to, you have to make the decision. So you weren't so in awe oh. that you you felt that he'd blessed you enough by by loving your music anyway, but you weren't so in awe that you just sort of sat there dithering, thinking, oh, I've only got to do what Dwayne wants. No, 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 no. Well, I, I, I'm still in awe of him. We, we, we're dearly, we're very, very close friends now. He's, 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 he's used to stay with us when the kids were little. That's incredible. The kids all called him Uncle Dwayne, his wife, Dee. Did, you, did wow. your dad we, play with him? Sorry, did you say earlier your dad played with him? At all? No, 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 no. There was a funny story because dad met uh, Dwayne on the steps of the City Hall in 63 and asked him for his autograph. And 
uh, that was it. They, there was hundreds of other kids and dad managed to get his autograph, which I've still got. And years later, I showed Dwayne this autograph and uh, I wasn't entirely sure whether dad was telling the truth, whether he'd written this autograph and Dwayne goes, no, 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 that's mine. That's <laughs> and then... Uh, Did you get uh, him to autograph the autograph? No, I should have, shouldn't I? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a, yeah, um, not that Dad was a bullshitter, but he wasn't at all. But anyway, I'm, I was very relieved to realise that Dad was definitely kind of true. It's no, you are in awe of people when you work with with them. He's, uh, I was speaking to Martin Ware recently and he, talking to him about when he was working with Tina Turner, you know. And it's that, yes, you're in awe, but you have to do what you do. Anyway, yeah, yeah. having the, the cheek and the balls yeah, well, to just kind of do it. You know, guys uh, guys played with all of them, haven't you? Madonna, Michael yeah, Jackson. Yeah. I mean, he's, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, but, and you do. I mean, there were some people that, there were some people that never goes away. He's in awe yeah. of me, of course, when we do this show. Yeah. Right? I mean, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sat here in my pants. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just can't see. Does Dwayne still play? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's, I think he's 84 now, Dwayne. Wow. So. Uh, does he, he sound like that? Does he sound like that? Like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Well, the last time because he's, he's he's you know he's 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 getting a, a older and uh, traveling's not an option now. I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that I'll go to Nashville to see him soon. We have got to talk about Alex Turner as well because I mean yes. this is for me. I think this boy's an utter genius. I think. He, he, he obviously has taken a lot of inspiration from you and your storytelling, your lyrics. Mm. I, I would imagine your records were in his collection when he was growing up as a kid, and he's from Sheffield. But you had a bit. I've seen we we're watching a couple of videos. He'd mm. come, come on stage with you and did a did a did a, one of his tracks, and then you did a song with him, didn't you? And as well, and I, I love that song that you did, wrote together and played together. How, how mm. would he? What's your you know relationship with Alex? He's a mate, you know, like they all are. I mean, I don't see him much anymore because they're megastars, you know, they're constantly on tour. Uh, I see Malik bass player he, he, a lot, uh, the most, I guess, out of them. And the thing is that they, uh, our tour manager is their tour manager, Chapman, and they've got half my crew as well. <laughs> so we share <laughs> we share crew and tour managers and stuff. And now they're good lads, you know, he's... Um, People talk about all this stuff. It's a bit too close for me to have an opinion about yeah. it, you know? Right. Is I, All I'll say is I'm just dead proud of them and that they haven't lost it, you know? It's, they, so they, did you see them coming up, kind of? Oh, God, yeah. Follow the journey, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right from early on, you know? And um, Alex used to pull my beer at the, the boardwalk, along with John McClure from Reverend and the Makers. They worked behind a bar. And when I used to play there with my a rockabilly band, the Feral Cats, which I only ever played with those guys. It was, I've never recorded anything. I never want any pressure on it, like a tour or any of that. Mm -hmm. We just played in local bars just to let rip, you know, and to keep us chops up, you know. And I'll work behind the bar. Uh, and this is years ago, you know, this is kind of ancient history. And yeah, we get chatting about music and what have you. But it was dead casual, you know, it still is. This this uh I've got pals with Al's granddad, you know. And in fact, actually when <laughs> the last shadow puppets were playing, I'll tell you a funny story. I don't know. Really with Miles Kane as well, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 We've uh, had him on. Yeah. Yeah, they, they were we've had him. It's um yeah. <laughs> it's, they were playing at the City Hall in Sheffield and Frank um, Al's granddad who's no longer with us, uh, he was a beautiful soul. And he went, and I remember Al saying, 
can you listen to that? Because his, his hearing's not so good. And I think he got hearing aids in. And it was the volume was too much for him at his age, you know. So he says to me, he goes, oh, can we go backstage? It's just too loud. So I says, yeah, no sweat. We get backstage and we got a pot of ale each. And then it was a really hot, I remember they played in summer and it was really fucking hot. And uh, I went out the back for a ciggy with Frank to get some air. And uh, I saw these two deck chairs next to the tour bus just leaning on a wall. So we opened up the back door of the city hall. We got a pot of ale each and got these deck chairs. And we, me and him, just Al's granddad, sat in these two deck chairs listening to the last shadow puppets, looking at the stars <laughs> above City Hall and that. It was great. Oh, yeah. mate. It sounds like the beginning of one of your songs. Possibly, yeah. yeah. No, he's, uh, no, you know, they're, they're, um, they're amazing monkeys. Proper amazing. I mean, all this shit about, oh, they've been influenced by me and all I don't know about all that. They, They've ploughed their own furrow, you know. Yeah, no, got... they they have. But I mean, I mean, I think he's a genius writer. His his mm. storytelling and it's. Hey, they're all good. Yeah. All they're all good, them lads. You know, he's a, a band's yeah. a band. Yes. You know, I've been involved in bands that are that big. Me, I'm very glad I'm not. I don't think you know I'm as famous or as successful as I want to be, uh, and I'm very very happy, more than happy with my lot. I think I've had far more than I deserve, to be fair. But he's. When you're in that position with them, if you consider Elvis was on his own, the Beatles had each other, you know? So for Al and he, all, each of them, they've got each other in that position. Yeah. And they're the only one, well, as the song, me and Al's song that we got Tony Christie to cover, they're the only ones who know. Do you know what I mean? We're, we're going to have to wrap up, Richard, but what's next for you is, uh, are you doing, because your last album came out 2019 or something, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. You're working on another one right now? Always, you know, I've got, the problem I've got now, to be honest, lads, is, is I've got too many songs, you know, so sifting through it is actually going to be the hardest work, I think. And then once I've done that, I just wrote shitloads in lockdown, you know, yeah. I actually thought I'd been a bit of a lazy fucker, to be honest, that I'd not done much. But then when the end of it, it's taken me a long time to sift through it. And I'm in no rush. That's the thing lockdown, old age and poverty has taught me. But when you write, do you... Don't be in a rush. When you say you've got lots of songs, do you mean you've got lots of songs that you can sit and play on your acoustic guitar or whatever yeah. it is? Or have you demoed them or no, recorded? No, acoustic guitar stage. I've and demoed is... a few. What is your writing process? Go on, take us through one of your writing days. They're in a process. There is no specific thing. Yeah. Mostly, to be honest, it's walking dog. <laughs> you know, it's getting away from guitars and getting away from mm -mm -mm. studios and that kind of thing. And it used, you know, when I was younger, it was all about sitting in a studio or sitting at home with my guitar. And now I'm older. I don't want that. I, I, the music has to come from somewhere else. Listen, Richard, absolutely brilliant having you on. Yeah, we, we, we could do this forever. I'm going to do something which I never do, which is so creepy, but I'm going to say that, you know, Cole's Corner, what a song. And Cheers, thank Cole. you for that. Yeah. Because that just, you know, whatever mood I'm in, that's the track. I go to that track and it will just shift me back to something good. Wow. I wrote that pushing my sons on the swings. I wish I'd known that when you were sulking on the bus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Richard. 
Thanks a lot, lads. Thank so much, man. It's an absolute joy. We'd love, yeah. definitely love to meet you up. We're definitely going to see your show at the National. Brilliant. Be there at the opening, invite us. Yeah. Up the owls. What a fella. I mean, that's... Oh, fantastic. I mean, the word steeped yes. comes to mind. Yes, steeped in stories and... and and hit, and just music that house that music. Like, as you said yeah you know, I bet you had that it was your outburst at one point that your fucking house it's so <laughs> but you know how someone in life normally there's there's they have their home life and then there's always a mentor that that they meet on the way that changes everything for them but it seems to me that his mentor was seriously his father and his uncle yeah i mean that, what a background that is and there's so much love in what he had to say as well I was... so much love, but the fact that it and it's just and, and this actually says so much about Sheffield that this lovely thing that just you know and it's generation after generation of, of you know that just sur- they're all surrounded and involved in it's wonderful yeah yeah I wonder if I'm wondering if London does have that that, that he was talking about because he said London and of course there's some great bands I, th- I think London it's there's Maybe bits of London have it. Yeah, of course we have the class thing here as well. We have very different levels and strata of class and there's the the sense that in... in I I don't think that. I think the whole thing with people in cities tend to cross those borders. You know, people... I mean, as you said, you know, all the people you met when you were young. Mm -hmm. There is much more of a meritocracy in a big city generally. But in the, you know... Anyway, anyway, let's en- not get onto that one. Enough of us. Uh, thank yeah. you for listening. Thank you to Ben for producing, for giving me sugar. And- we thank all of you. And, and uh, as you, uh, you may have seen, you can now get our mugs on a mug. You can. And a T-shirt. And a T-shirt. So, so yeah, go to, go to our website and you'll find the merchandise available. And It'll save you having to buy those socks or scented candles at the last minute for Christmas shopping. And we're back next week with a legend. Another legend. Oh, yeah, proper. Thank you. Yes. Good good, night from me. It's good night from them. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.